Well, this evening and this weekend, we're returning to the book of Exodus. Uh, You may remember that we started a series on Exodus in September. Uh, Through various circumstances, we only ended up having four Sundays on the book. Uh, We're going to pick it up again and hopefully make better progress with it. Uh, We left Exodus in chapter 4. Quite a lot happened in the early chapters that we looked at. Uh, We noted that Exodus is an epic adventure story, and in the early part of the story, we saw a cruel villain in Pharaoh and an unlikely hero in Moses. But we were also given a picture of who God is. God is the one who wins and rules internationally, nationally, and personally. He is the one who is with his people uh, despite their suffering. Uh, And as we were strongly reminded of in Exodus 3, he is the God who is holy. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw Moses respond to the call of God on his life. He was hesitant, to put it mildly. He provided God with five excuses as to why he shouldn't, go, shouldn't do what God is calling him to do, namely lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Chapter 4 ended with Moses and Aaron taking up the baton of service, though. Chapter 4 ends on this spiritual high as the people of Israel worship God, having realized that he alone is their deliverer. But as the story progresses, things are only going to get worse for them. With all that said, here's what we're going to do tonight, and here's where we're going with this series. Tonight, we're going to attempt a big sweep of Exodus 5 to 11, and then on Sunday, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. Uh, The reasons for that will become apparent, I hope, on Sunday. Exodus 12 is the chapter about the Passover, And that links very naturally with communion. Uh, The reason we're doing a big sweep of chapters 5 to 11 is, although the detail is important, it is helpful to step back and think about the big picture. Uh, Chapters 5 to 11 include the nine plagues God sent on Egypt. Uh, We'll touch on them this evening, but not in any significant detail. The, the, The big picture that we get from these chapters is that Pharaoh goes into battle against God. Exodus 5 to 11 tells the story of the matchup between God and Pharaoh. As we'll eventually see, it's not much of a contest, but there is a very real battle going on in these chapters as Pharaoh hardens his heart and as God reveals who he is. At this point, we're going to read part of the story and then we'll try and step back and take in the big picture. We're going to read Exodus 5. So if you have a Bible there, let's turn to Exodus chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 48. This is the story of Pharaoh making God's people make bricks without straw. Quite a well-known story. And we're going to read it together and then think about uh, these chapters this evening. So Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. 
The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past shall you impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. As we approach Exodus 5 to 11, what we need to keep in mind is that there has been a battle raging in the Bible since Genesis chapter 3. The battle that began in Genesis 3 between God and Satan runs through almost the entire Bible. It manifests itself in different ways at different points. There are some very famous examples. The story of David and Goliath is one, but that's jumping ahead in the story. Before David and Goliath, we have the story of God and Pharaoh. And what we should realize is that Pharaoh represents Satan. He is an example to us of someone with a hard heart. As we approach these chapters and attempt a big sweep of them, we're going to ask two questions. The first question is, what is it like to have a hard heart? And the second question is, who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? So let's try and deal with that first question. What is it like to have a hard heart? Of all the chapters in the Bible, of all the characters in the Bible, Pharaoh is perhaps the best example who lives, of someone who lives in rebellion to God. Chapter 5 is instructive in telling us what it's like to have a hard heart. Uh, from the story of Pharaoh making the people of Israel make bricks without straw, we can say, first of all, that having a hard, hard heart means that you are ignorant of God's identity. In verse 2, you'll see that Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Far from seeking to find out who God really was, Pharaoh denied God had any claim on his life. Pharaoh speaks like an unbeliever in that he says that he doesn't know the Lord. As well as that, as well as being ignorant of God's identity, Pharaoh was resistant to God's authority. That's seen in verse 2 as well. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, what's curious about Pharaoh, about what Pharaoh says here, is that he speaks in defiance of the God he says he doesn't believe in. It's a bit of a paradox. He, he speaks in defiance of the God that he says doesn't exist. Even while he was casting doubt on God's existence, he was busy rebelling against him. He was saying something like, I have no idea who this God of yours is, but whoever he is, I'm not going to serve him. His professed ignorance of God's identity didn't prevent him from resisting God's authority. And this is the contradiction that lies in every unbelieving heart, People who refuse to acknowledge the living God still defy him at every turn. There's always something rebellious about unbelief. No one is completely ignorant of God's identity. The reality of his divine being is written on every human heart. Even the most hardened unbeliever knows somewhere deep down that there is a God. On top of all of that, Pharaoh was hostile towards God's people. Hostile is putting it mildly. He was malevolent. He showed intense, vicious, and spiteful hatred towards the people of God. It's most clearly seen as he passes down orders to have the Israelites work harder in more difficult circumstances. You get a real sense of it when you read chapter 5. His treatment of God's people is brutal, in particular in verses 6 to 9. Although Pharaoh is an extreme case, his example shows that a man who opposes God ultimately opposes and oppresses God's people. Unbelief is partly an intellectual problem. The unbeliever doesn't know the Lord's name. It's partly a spiritual problem. The unbeliever refuses to obey the Lord's will. But it's also often a social problem. The unbeliever doesn't care for the Lord's people. This is what it's like to have a hard heart. Now here's where the punch comes. The New Testament is full of warnings about believers hardening their hearts to God and his truth. Let me give you the best example. It's Hebrews 3 verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For for us this evening, as we prepare to meet around the Lord's table, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. We thought about what it's like to have a hard heart. Are you, am I, ignorant of God's identity? Do do we know who it is we come to approach? Do do we fully understand who we ignore? Do, Do we fully understand who we reject? Are you, am I, resistant to God's authority? He has given us his word, his sure and final word, he, will give us, he won't give us anything else because he doesn't need to. Are we resistant to what he says in his word? Do we blatantly ignore how he tells us to live? Do we think we know better than him? Are you, am I, hostile to God's people? We might not be persecutors, but is there an issue between you and another believer that needs to be ironed out? 
Are we open to helping other believers rather than providing superficial sympathy? Are we praying for the spiritual growth of our fellow brothers and sisters? Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Pharaoh is a case study in the deceit of sin and unbelief. It's like a slow motion car crash that allows us to see the tragedy unfold. We want to step in and we want to make it stop. But in the real time action of our own lives, we ourselves too often get caught up in the insanity of sin. The hardening of our hearts overthrows reasons. Reason. We find excuses for our sinful and proud desires. We find reasons for doing what we want to do. When it all unravels, we wade further into sin rather than accepting our ter- terrible mistake and backing away from it. We're like Shakespeare's Macbeth, who having murdered his king, is confronted with the choice of admitting his actions or murdering again. And he concludes, I am in blood stepped in so far, should I wade no more? Returning were as tedious as go o'er. By nature, we go on deeper and deeper. And that's what Pharaoh did. And that's why we need others to encourage us to fight sin and expose for us the deceit of sin when we can't see, see it for ourselves. Pharaoh is the archetypal unbeliever and his actions and his story stand as a warning to us. But, but his story also reveals the God we trust in and serve. Our second question this evening is, who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? Well, what is it like to have an, a hard heart? And who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? The, the, the plagues come down from chapter 7 onwards. Uh, between now and Sunday, your homework, your task is to sit down and read all that happens between chapters 5 and 11. There are nine plagues between Exodus 7 and 11. The tenth plague comes a little bit later. I wonder, can you name the nine plagues? I wonder, do you know them? Uh, there's the Nile turning to blood. There's the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. And then there's the, the death of the firstborn, but it comes later. Well, what, what's most important about the plagues is what they reveal about the God who sent them. And there are four main truths that the plagues teach us about him. Let me just run through them very briefly. Who who is the God that takes on? Who who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? Well, he's the true God. The the plagues show that God is more than just a local deity. There were lots of gods in Pharaoh's day, but all of the plagues show that God is more powerful than that. Many of the plagues are attacks on specific Egyptian gods too, Before Israel's God, our God, all other gods are powerless. Who's the God that that Pharaoh takes on? Well, he's the mighty creator. As he unleashes each plague, the Lord is marshalling the powers of creation against Pharaoh, using only weapons that the creator can use. The Lord is unique because he is the creator. Sometimes we're told the source of the plague. So for example, the frog, frogs come from the waters, the gnats from the dust of the ground, and the hail from the darkness from the sky. The, the, the idea is that God deploys all of creation, land, sea, and sky. All of creation is mobilized against Pharaoh. In the end, even light and life are extinguished as we move from frogs in beds to bodies in the street. Some of the plagues have, uh, may have been natural phenomena. 
There may even have been knock-on effects with the earlier plagues. So the Nile is polluted, which sends the frogs into the towns. The frogs die in huge numbers, which brings gnats and flies. These then produce an epidemic of disease, which kills the livestock and, and spreads boils among humans. But the time of the plagues leaves no room for doubt that this is God's doing. He is the mighty creator. Who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? He's the holy judge as well. In chapter 9, verse 8, the boils come from soot from a furnace, probably a brick kiln. The source of Israel's oppression in chapter 5 becomes the source of Egypt's judgment. Pharaoh tells them, make bricks without straw, and now this plague comes from the soot of a furnace. The punishment fits the crime. In chapter 1, the Hebrews filled the land in fulfillment of God's command in Genesis 1 to fill the earth. But Pharaoh tried to stop that creative energy becoming a kind of anti-creator. Through the plagues, though, God unravels creation. He sends it into reverse. Water no longer brings life. Animals no longer serve human beings. Instead, they invade like armies. Light returns to darkness and life to dust. Creation is is heading back into its dark and chaotic state. Everything falls apart. Egypt is unmade. All around Pharaoh, the, the very fabric of his world is falling apart, disintegrating into chaos, darkness, and death. Something similar happens to us, doesn't it? We were made to live in obedience to God and in dependence on him, but the Bible tells us that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped created things rather than the creator. And when we reject God, we are unmade. Our psychological and physical lives become disordered. The result is emotional darkness, mental breakdown, relational conflict, and physical addiction. Sickness entered the world, and we are all heading for death, the ultimate act of uncreation. Egypt is a picture of life in meltdown under God's judgment. The plagues are a sign that God's coming judgment is real. Who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? He's the true God. He's the the mighty creator. He's the holy judge. But he's also gloriously, magnificently, beautifully, the gracious savior. As creation unravels around Pharaoh, God makes an exception for his people. They don't experience plagues four to ten. Why? What, what, what made them different? Were they better people? Not at all. The Bible is clear that salvation doesn't depend on, on human desire or effort. We don't choose to pursue God. God first pursues us. If it were left to us, then we would never t- turn to God in repentance and faith. God makes an exception for his people and hardens Pharaoh's heart so that we might see in utter clarity the riches of his glory to us on whom he has shown mercy. You and I cannot claim to be a Christian because of our desires or efforts. It's all because of God's rich mercy from from first to last. And what mercy it is. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness. It wasn't the last time darkness came as a sign and means of judgment. Another day dawned and then darkened unnaturally as a man hung dying on a cross while from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. The three days of darkness over Egypt were mirrored by the three hours of darkness over Jesus 
followed by his death. At the cross, the plagues fell on Jesus, the Son of God. At the cross, the maker came to be unmade so that we can be remade. That's so good to hear. The maker came to be unmade so that we can be remade. The Son of God unraveled under the judgment of the Father. He experienced chaos, darkness, and death. As Jesus died, the rocks split and the earth shook. It was the ultimate moment of uncreation. The plagues stand as pointers to the cross and resurrection of Jesus, to the ultimate signs of judgment and salvation. On the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment that will fall on all who are outside of him, and he has been raised as judge of the world to bring that judgment. But the cross also brings salvation to all who are in him, and his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. So what is it like to have a hard heart? To have a hard heart is to be ignorant of God's identity, resistant to God's authority, and hostile to God's people. And the warning of scripture is, take care lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. And then who is the God that Pharaoh takes on? He's the true God, the mighty creator, the holy judge, and the gracious savior. Without Jesus, we cannot stand before God and we cannot know him. As we approach his table on Sunday, we should be exceedingly thankful that he has saved us and rescued us. In Exodus 10 verses 1 and 2, part of the, part of the big sweep that we've done, God says that he is sending the plagues so that you may tell your children and grandchildren what God wants is worshippers for generations to come. He sends the plagues to free the Israelites to worship him and to give them reasons to do so. And it's the same for us. He sent his son to free us so that we might worship him and to give us reasons to do so. The only difference is that we have been given far more reasons to worship. They saw the judgment and salvation in the plagues. We have seen the final judgment and salvation in the cross and the resurrection of God's own son. And wonderfully, we have the opportunity to meet around his table this coming Lord's Day. We should prepare our hearts as we meet for worship. We should bow in reverence at what God has done for us. We should have joy in our hearts because of how gracious the Lord is and of how he has rescued us through Christ. Let's examine our hearts before Sunday. Let's take care that there isn't unbelief and evil in our hearts but let's also reflect on who God is and what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we would repent of times when evil and unbelief has lingered in our hearts. We know that we're prone to wander, prone to falling away in our walk with you. We pray that by your spirit, you, you would draw us back to you this evening, that you would work in us faithfulness and a desire to grow in grace. We thank you for who you are tonight. We thank you that the story of the plagues in Exodus revealed to us that you're the true God, the mighty creator, the holy judge, and the gracious savior. 
we bow in wonder at who you are and of how we can know you. And we thank you for Jesus, our gracious and precious Savior, the one who has gone into the darkness, who has taken on the judgment that we deserved, also that we might feast around your table and know you as our Father and our friend. Help us to reflect on the gospel in the coming days and bless our time together on Sunday as a church family. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.